there's a, something called a topographical disorientation. And, and this, this fits into why I think the book of Acts is, is the right place for us to be as a church. Uh, I've talked about this, I think, maybe once, a, once upon a time in a message, but uh, good luck if you, or congratulations if you remember that. But uh, it's, it's developmental topographical disorientation is, a, is, a, is something that people have. It's, it's something that people experience. Uh, it's a very slim percentage of the population experience uh, this particular uh, uh, disorder, uh, disorientation. Uh, some people experience this. And what that really means is that people don't have their, their brains, the way that their brains have developed has not allowed them to map the world around them. And so there's a story of a, of a gal when she was just a little kid. She went, you know, she was playing with her friends down the street and all of a sudden she looked up and she had no idea where she was or how to find her way back home. And, uh, and she, she eventually kind of like somebody found her and brought her home, and she didn't tell her mom about that. And that went on for years and years and years uh, until one point she, her brother called her in a situation where she needed to take him to the hospital. She got lost on the way to his house. And, uh, and she had to come clean with the fact that she, didn't, she couldn't figure out where she was a lot of the time. And I just feel like that would be so scary, right? That would be such a heavy, weighty thing to just all of a sudden be able to look up and you're like, I don't know where I am, and I don't know how to get to where I'm supposed to go. I don't know where I've come from. And, uh, and there's a sense of grounding that happens when you know where you are, right? If, I, if ever I'm traveling, I'm like, I'm the kind of person who wants to look at my map and see kind of where, I, where am I relative to everything else, because it will help me have a sense of where I am, where I've come from, and where I'm going. And so there is this helpfulness of being grounded and knowing where we are. And that's what the book of Acts ultimately does for us as a church, is it helps us know where we are in this history of redemption that God is writing. Because the world around us, for sure, is a little bit disorienting. And if you're not disoriented by the world around you, uh, let's talk. So I'd love to, you know, get, know what you know. Uh, I would love to be, you know, see what you're seeing there, because the, the world around us certainly can be disorienting. Certainly can be, un, you know, challenge your groundedness. Um, but there is this sense, this way in which we can know, even, even school starting, I think, helps us to have a sense of like time and, oh, it's school starting. It didn't look how it usually does, but at least it's, it's fall. You know, college football was on TV, if, even if nobody was there. You know, so I kind of know where we are in the year. But I think it's really important that we know as a church where we are in the story of redemption. That's what we were studying, the, the history of redemption, B.C. How, would, how did redemption get all the way through the Old Testament to this pinnacle of the scriptures in King Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection? Okay, that, it got us all the way there, but now where, where are we? How do we relate to that? And so what I want you to see is Acts ultimately is this bridge between uh, then and now. Acts bridges us from then and now. It's a, you'll see as we, as we work our way through this book that it actually is, it ends with a cliffhanger. It doesn't end with a conclusion. Uh, and, and so Acts is this bridge, and what you need to, the, this is the main, if you're going to bracket our conversation, what you need to understand and remember, and I, I hope that God can just do something in you with this, that the history of redemption is still being written. The history of redemption that we've been studying in the Old Testament, it's not something that's uh, done. It's something that is still happening, okay? 
And so what we need to see, we're going to see in this passage, okay, as we get into the book of Acts, and uh, I've been studying it, it's, it's been so good for my heart, but what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen, okay? And so with that, I think we can maybe overcome some of our topographical disorientation as a church, as individuals, as a part of this church, okay? So Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be, uh, and guys, I... Uh, if you want to put up that first part of it, you can use that slide as the first part. But otherwise, turn in, turn in your Bible so you can look. Um, if you just grabbed a journal, you can, it's, it's like the first page or after the title page and all that. So Acts chapter 1, open up your Bible. You can look at this. What has happened, okay? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, so uh, track with me on this. This is the opening of the book of Acts. But what the opening, do you see who it's addressed to? It says, oh, uh, in the first book, O Theophilus. Okay, so what we see, in, and he calls it the first book. What, what book is he talking about? He's talking about the, uh, the gospel of Luke. So Luke is actually a two-part uh, set. It's, it's, not, it's not just, you know, it's weird. It's, they, they chose to put all four of the Gospels together in the canon. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they separated Luke and Acts. But really, if you're reading uh, Luke, you would read straight through from the Gospel of Luke right into the book of Acts. That's what he means. He, he, he broke it into two volumes, but it's a two-volume set. They go together. So the first book, O Theophilus, and, and Theophilus uh, means friend or beloved by God. Uh, and, so, and so there is a sense in which, like, uh, you, you, can, you can hear this. He's, he's writing to this guy who's, uh, who's beloved by God, which I think a lot of us actually just don't really believe that we are. Um, so it would be kind of sweet if that was our name, and it kind of just butted up against us every single day. Uh, maybe I just want to change my name sometimes to Theophilus. To, maybe it'll help me believe it. Um, but uh, Theophilus is, you can see in, his, in, the first, in the opening of Luke, it's not just some generic name. It's not symbolic. There's actually somebody who is Theophilus that he's writing to. And this is a guy who has dealt with a lot, who is dealing with a lot of challenges to his faith. Because even in the starting out the book of Luke, what he's telling these, uh, his, uh, what, he, what Luke is telling Theophilus is, hey, I want you to be certain about this stuff. You need some certainty because you're going to bet your life on this. And so I want you to be sure about what it is that you believe. And so uh, he, he's writing to him. Uh, he wrote, wrote the book so he could be confident. And now he's continuing to write this book. And so uh, he, he said he, in the first book, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, which is just such an interesting way of saying that. And I, what I find really interesting about this, this first section of Acts is that it actually overlaps with Luke 24. So at the end of Luke 24, in the beginning of Acts 1, you have about a 40-day period that gets covered twice. So if something's getting covered twice, it's like, hey, this is kind of an important deal. Uh, so I want to lean into that. And so he's covering this section twice, and he sums it up in, you know, here where he talks about uh, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I just want to review briefly with you what Jesus began to do and teach, okay? Because this is actually a really critical part of understanding where you fit into the history of redemption, 
Not just what it is. It's, it's, it's neat. There's a plenty of seminary students who can tell you all the ins and outs of church history and the history of redemption and all that. Uh, and, and you know what? There's a decent number of them whose hearts are completely dead. This is like the secret, uh, you know, dark under, you know, underbelly of seminary is that there's a lot of people in there who are not actually Christians. Scary. You can know a ton and not actually believe it. So what, what did Jesus begin to do and teach? And all of, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read to you from Luke 24. Listen, uh, this is uh, where he's, end, so Luke 24 again is ending this first book and now he's beginning the second book and he's bridging here from what Jesus began to do and teach to what Jesus will continue to do and teach. But what did he do and teach? This is Luke 24, verse 44. We don't have it on the screen, so just listen. This is Jesus with his disciples right before he is ascends, okay? It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's what we just got done talking about for like 12 weeks is how Jesus was dead set on everybody understanding the Old Testament was about me. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he's saying all the Old Testament, all of it was written talking about my suffering and resurrection. Okay, so if you're reading the Old Testament, as you're engaging with the Old Testament, just understanding the scriptures, what, do you, what, are, we, what are we keying in on? Jesus keys in on this one thing. I came to suffer and die and be resurrected. And the way that I've been thinking about that this week is, um, you know, vaccines are a big, there's a big, conver- you know, a lot of conversation about vaccines right now because we want a vaccine for COVID-19. And I do. Uh, I, I want that vaccine and I want to get it into everybody's hands. But there's something that I was thinking about that was, it's even more urgent. Sometimes, sometimes something would be, it's not more urgent. There's hundreds of thousands of people who are dealing with this. But another, another it's not a vaccine. There's something called an anti-venom. What do you use an anti-venom for? It, it counteracts venom from a snake, right? And so if you're around me for like, you know, 15 minutes, you'll probably learn, I really, I really, really don't like snakes. Uh, I really, really don't like snakes. And snake, snake bites, you know, like 20,000 people die of snake bites every year. Actually, 100,000 people die of snake bites every year. Just sub-Saharan Africa, it's 20,000 people. So 100,000 people a year are dying from snake bites, which is pretty serious, guys. That's a lot of people, Okay. And, uh, and so what you need in that is anti-venom, okay? And that's actually how I've been thinking about uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in a lot of ways this week as it relates to the book of Acts. And you'll see why. But what Jesus did in his suffering and in his resurrection is that he created this anti-venom. The way that you actually create anti-venom is that you inject a small amount of that into an animal, they create antibodies, you extract the antibodies, then you um, clean them up, and then you can distribute them to everybody. What Jesus did is a slightly different though, he didn't just take a small amount of the venom, he took all the venom. And so you need to hear that today. 
when Jesus is saying all that he began to do and teach, what was he teaching? He was, taking, he was saying, I'm going to take the sin of the whole world on my shoulders. I'm going to take the venom of sin, and I'm going to drink it down into my veins. I'm going to let it crush me, kill me, and, I'm going to be, and then I'm going to overcome that and resurrect from the dead. And I'm going to create in the gospel of Jesus an anti-venom for the venom that we all have running through our veins already. We are born with a venom in our veins. Now, not your physical veins, but the veins of your soul. You are born with this. Your heart's inclination is away from God. You should not be surprised by that in yourself. You should not be surprised by that if you have kids or in your roommates or in your spouse or your extended family. Anybody who's not a believer in Jesus, quite frankly, they have, no, they have in their, the veins of their soul running a venom that is dead set on killing them. Okay? And so I just don't want to gloss over that. What did he begin to do and teach O Theophilus? That Jesus Christ, don't, don't let this be like, oh, I've heard this a bunch of times. For you, the Son of God, drank the wrath of the Father and drank it in full for you. Okay? And so it says that, it says that he began to do and teach these things. And, and so he's like, I covered that. And then it wasn't just that Jesus died on your behalf. Okay, a lot of people could say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll just take this one. There's a lot of stories written about that. Great stories, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Darnay. These guys like laying down their life for other people. And it's an amazing thing, okay? It really is. There's nobody who's doing what Jesus did because he did it. And then he overcame death. Okay, it's a critical piece of what this whole thing is hinging upon because what we're going to see is that Jesus' resurrection is the proof, okay, of his payment in full for you. Without his resurrection, Jesus could have been just a well-intentioned guy who was trying to do something nice. But because he is the son of God, death cannot hold him. That's what we see, okay? And so he did this. Look at, look at what, he, look at what uh, he says in verse 3. He says, um, uh, he, he, he began to do and teach these things until the day that he was taken up after, and he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then he goes, he says this, he says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. What an what a interesting, he didn't say, and he presented himself alive and then we're moving on. By many proofs. And so I'm wondering if there's any part of you that's ever just doubted the fact that Jesus actually came back from the dead. Just be honest in your seat. If you, don't have, you don't have to raise your hand or anything. For the record, other people, other cults and other beliefs can say, oh yeah, this guy's still alive or his spirit is still alive. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking, we're talking about something subjective like that. We're talking about something objective. Somebody who was in a tomb dead came back to life. And he did that by many proofs. Jesus took pains, okay, to show his disciples all the time, hey, if you go back to the, just to the resurrection accounts, Jesus is like, look, I'm eating this fish because I'm not just a ghost. I'm an actual resurrected body. Now, resurrection bodies seem awesome because they can, like, walk through doors and stuff. Okay, we don't even know what that's going to be like. It's going to be amazing. But it's not an idea. It's real. You need that. We need that. We need, like, flesh and blood, something real. 
And Jesus was really resurrected. That's what, that's what uh, Luke is telling Theophilus. If you're going to bridge this thing from the Old Testament into the life of Jesus, now into the life of the church, you have to know that what happened in here was real. Christianity isn't subjective. The resurrection was not really like, oh, you know what, these guys back in the day, back in the first century, they were just kind of superstitious. And so they really believed in things like this. Listen to me, if you're, if, if you're trying to just write off first century people as weird, uh, hyper-spiritual, uh, superstitious individuals, there was no grounding or no basis to think that the resurrection would have even happened at this time. In Greek thought, in Roman thought, there was no, there, this wouldn't even have been the solution that they would have come up with. The body was this kind of like uh, dirty thing that we needed to escape from in those lines of thinking. And in Jewish thought, there was a sense of the resurrection, but not right now. It would happen one day. Nobody was expecting this. That's part of the fun of this whole thing is that the disciples and the apostles that you were going to see, they were like, I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you guys. He's alive. And so I'm kind of just going with the guy who beat death. It's part of the fun and part of the amazing reality of this truth is that it, nobody, was, nobody saw this coming. Okay, we keep going. Tim, Tim Keller, he said it this way. And, and for you, if you're in the room and maybe you're just kind of, uh, there's not, it's not a huge room, or maybe you're online and, and so you're maybe a little bit more anonymous or something. If you're in this room or you're hearing this or you have a friend or a coworker or somebody around you who actually doesn't believe this, maybe you actually don't believe this yet. One, I think that God is after you because you're listening to this. Or two, I think that God is after that person in your life because now he's put them on your mind. So, But if you don't, the question is not to ask if Christianity is relevant. Is Christianity relevant to the things that we're facing in our culture today? It's not the question. Is Christianity practical? Is it going to help me do what I want to do in my life? It's not the question. The question about Christianity that you need to have an answer to and that the people around you who don't know Jesus, what they really need to know is, is it true? Look at me. Is it true? Because guys, if he didn't come back from the dead, let's all go do something else. There's plenty of other stuff to do on the weekends. There's other ways that you can spend your money. There's other nonprofits that you could give your money to to support other than a church. Do you know that? There's other 501c3s you could give your money tax write-off, no big deal. But if it's true, then everything's different. If it's true, then everything changes. Don't ask if it's relevant. Don't ask if it's practical. Ask if it's true. And what, what this book is telling us, what these words, what this uh, author is telling us, is that Jesus presented himself alive to these certain guys who are going to come into play really important in just a minute for your life, okay? Uh, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering. So after he died on a cross, he wasn't apparently dead. He was actually dead, okay? Spear in his side, blood and water separate. He was physiologically dead for you. In a tomb, three days, came out. That's what we're saying. He presented himself alive, appearing to them 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And oh man, if I could have just been in the room to listen to Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. The king talking about his kingdom. Man, that would be rich. Keep going. 
It says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days from now. Do you see that? So Jesus is kind of bringing them up to speed here. He's helping them figure out where they fit now in this context of the history of redemption. Hey, where is your life in this history, okay? And, and just, just a quick side note on this. History progressing towards something is a uniquely Christian idea that secularism has totally ripped off, okay? Being progressive is the Scripture's idea. Most Eastern religions, most other worldviews actually have a cyclical view of time. They don't have a linear progression of time. This is uniquely Christian to say that we're on our way somewhere. You know where you fit in this? You're not just this round of the universe happening. Your life fits into a very particular place. Your life that you're living right now. And he says something's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. Okay, so it's like kind of very pre-Christmas, you know, moments, you feeling, you know, like have you ever just been waiting for something? When was the last time you were waiting for something really with like a lot of excitement? It's been like, I don't know, the, the, the easiest one for me is my wedding day where I'm like, I'm, I'm 100% ready for this day, I, I thought, you know. Turns out I was like really, you know, personally ill-equipped for everything, but uh, God's been gracious and my wife is nice. Uh, and so, uh, but, but still, like he, he's telling them, uh, I'm talking to you about the kingdom of God and I want you to stay put. I want you to stay put because something's about to happen. Now, what is happening? Not what did happen. Now, what is happening is the next header, okay? And so... So, so, so when, they, when they came together, uh, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So when they had come together, now you have these guys who walk with Jesus for three years. Now they're sitting with him at his resurrected body. They're at the table. There's a lot of talk about like, were they, was their fellowship like table fellowship? And wherever they were at, they were with Jesus in a resurrection body. Okay, and so whether they're eating dinner with him or something, they all come together and they said, "Hey Jesus, so you're talking about the kingdom and how amazing the kingdom is and what it's like and how how you're the king and and how we fit into this." picture and how that's actually better for us. And I don't know what he was saying. He's talking about the kingdom of God and it's, it's, I want to listen to it. But what their question was, it's not, it was particular one thing. Do you see what their question was? So is, is it right now? Like, is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now at this time? And this is, I think this is like the biblical equivalent to, um, to like your kids in the back seat uh, asking if, are we there yet? which is, comes just so naturally, like it's so baked in to us. And you, I'm like, so if, you're, if you don't have kids, just know that that is a very real thing. It's like not a, it's like a, I don't, but even if you don't have kids, if you're single, you're, you know this sense, you know this place where you're like, is this time, is it time yet? I'm ready for this. Okay, are we there yet? And this is the biblical equivalent of, 
Are we there yet? And I've heard it said that there's never, there, this is, never has there been so much theological error packed into one sentence, okay? Uh, that's, I've, I've heard it said that way because their question was, seems so distorted and not, and, not, and not the right question to ask. I, I don't give them as hard of a time about their question, but, but there, if there's a way of reading this where you would see the question they're asking is, will God restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking in a, in a political realm, primarily in this space, to ask that question. They were thinking in a single a national realm, the kingdom to Israel. Is Israel going to get to be in its special place now? And so we, we do this. We have a tendency to make two things into one a lot. So there's a, frequently in a lot of meetings, I mean, I feel like I'm having to say, these are actually two different things. And that's what Jesus is ultimately saying to them is there's two different things happening. I've come once, but I'm going to come again. And there's something that's going to happen between. Don't make them into one thing. And also don't knock the disciples too hard on this either. Uh, they did. They they did. They had a category for Israel that was na- uh, national, like that was their their ethnic group. And they don't really know what they're about to get into. Jesus is going to let them know what they're about to get into. But for all they know, they're just thinking about the nation of Israel, and so they're wondering, Jesus, you've come back from the dead. Is it is this going to happen now? But I don't knock them too hard because what is baked into their question is a desire for something. I think a desire that has, in our situation, been really dampened a lot. Do you, do you long for Jesus to, to restore the kingdom to whatever he's going to restore it to, to bring the kingdom back? Is that the longing of your soul? Would you, with the disciples, say, is it going to happen now? Or is there something else in your world, in your life, that you have a milestone, you have a marker of, Man, I would love for Jesus to come back. Maybe, uh, maybe after I get this this uh, house that I, you know, we're saving up to be able to live in this neighborhood, or maybe after I can have this relationship pan out, or maybe I, maybe you know, somewhere along the way, is there some milestone that you would say, "I'd love for Jesus to come back after this." See, that's why I don't knock these disciples too hard, is because they knew for certain that when Jesus would restore the kingdom, whatever that meant, it was going to be good going to be good. So wherever there is seeping into your heart, maybe some sense that, that all the promises of the Bible seem nice, but we'll take those as a consolation to, to dying, you know, okay, great. I know we're going to die, so, but I'll kind of like have that out there as, a, as an abstract hope that I can lean on. That's not how the Bible talks about our hope. It talks about our hope of Jesus restoring the kingdom, whatever that looks like for these disciples, as better than anything you could ever imagine better than anything you could ever imagine. And so I just want to challenge you. If there's something in this life that you feel like you could pursue and attain that would be better than Jesus' restoring of the kingdom, I, I have that, guys. I want to give my little girls really good things. I want to see them flourish. I want to, for the love, go to Kauai and stay there as long as possible. All those things are really silly compared to Jesus restoring the kingdom. Maybe the Spirit would just convince you of that this morning a little bit. Okay, so they ask this question, is this happening now? Are we there yet? 
Jesus' response. Look at his response. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. (laughs) The effect of this is know and stop asking. You know, we're not there yet. It's not happening now. And stop asking because that's not what you need to be concerned about. Because Jesus is going to give them something they need to be concerned about. Listen, verse 8. The resurrection, so verse 8, we'll read it. But you will receive power. So it is not for you to know times. It is for you to do something else. It's not for you, uh, apostles of Jesus, disciples. Apostles just means sent ones, okay? So it's these very particularly commissioned, sent disciples of Jesus. Apostles, you, you don't need to know when it's going to happen. You need to know something else. And so the, the but that comes in, in verse 8, you should lean into, okay? So it's not that. It's not, hey, you know, is, and people do this still. There's like billboards. It's like, hey, May 11th, 2021 is, you know, it's all going down. And the, like how many, you got you to gotta like laugh at the guy, or the guy who's taking those signs down after the billboards are done. Where it's like, well, that date passed. I guess we didn't have, you know, it's it's like, you know, just making yourself look like such an idiot out there because you're claiming things the Bible specifically says don't claim that. The Son of God would not claim a date on which this thing is going to all go down. So you definitely shouldn't. Jesus is saying that's not what's important. You don't need to know when. You need to know what you're going to do until then. You don't need to know when. You need to know what you need to do until then. Okay, so look. He says, but you will receive power, but, it's not for you to know this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the resurrection wasn't what we see now, the completion of redemption. It was the completion of that stage of redemption. Look at this. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus is not the completion of redemption. Redemption being this ransoming, this buying back, this rescuing of your soul, which is pretty, pretty real, okay? We all want to just kind of hang out as if life's, life's going to last forever. I was talking to my neighbor. Uh, my neighbor, you know, hey, man, what, you, what do you have going on this weekend? Uh, I'm going to a funeral and then to the lake. I'm like, oh, just like what a whip, you know, whiplash of like, hey, I'm going to go to a funeral and bury somebody, and then I'm going to go play at the lake uh, and hopefully just be able to have fun. I think most of us, if we could just skip the funeral, we'd just go to the lake. Funerals are coming, so we got to know the answers to these questions. Now it's, it's imperative, okay? And so the, the resurrection wasn't the completion of redemption. Don't act like redemption is something you know, frivolous or not relevant to you. It's relevant to your life. And so it's not completed and finished at the resurrection and ascension. It's actually complete. It's, it's just that stage is completed. It isn't finished. And so... He tells them, you will receive power. You see that? It's the same thing he says in Luke 24. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Which sounds amazing. You're about to receive an ability to do something. Okay? That's what he's telling his disciples. You're about to be able to do something that is wild. There's like so many fun illustrations. I'm, for the sake of time, just pressing on, okay? Uh, and so Luke 24 says you're going to be clothed in it. It's going to come upon you. 
So what you, I mean, baked into this is that the power is not in you. And I could spend an hour telling you how the world is trying to get you to believe that the power is in you. You got this, okay? But that is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying the power to fulfill what you are made to do as a human being is actually coming upon you. For these guys, they're going to be clothed in it. And what is it that they're going to be clothed in? The power from where? The Holy Spirit. This is God's power coming upon them to do what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So your first thing you get from Jesus, okay, you got this power coming. What do you, it's not just to, to just go do whatever you want to do. It's for a reason. It's a, it's a tool. It's a gift. It's a, an, an enablement to be able to do something, to be Jesus' witnesses. Do you see that? You will receive power from the Holy Spirit as he come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the end of the earth. Okay, so they're going to be witnesses for Jesus of his life, death, and resurrection to the authenticity of it, to the reality of it. Is there anybody better positioned to do this? There's not. These individuals walked with Jesus. They ate meals with him after he was resurrected. They need to be able to affirm, attest this, but the weight of it, the heaviness of it, the enablement of the Holy Spirit to do it, it's going to be effective, and it's going to be effective where? To the ends of the earth. So the need for the power, so in, and just, for, just so you know, Acts, we're going to see this start in Jerusalem, and it's going to end in Rome. And what happens when you get to Rome is basically you've gotten this news into the bloodstream in such a way that it's about to just, it's about to just go. Okay? There's no internet then. There was no global interconnected flow of information at that point. It was going to be person to person. And these are going to be the guys that start it. These are the guys who got us in this room. But, but if there was, even if the internet was existent then, these are not the guys to execute this plan. Do you realize that? I've heard it said that there's never been a more important assignment given to a less qualified group of people. Never, have there, never has there been a more important assignment given to a less qualified group of people. These are not your A-team influencers, elite guys who are going to be able to, oh, I got this media group, I can kind of pump it in there. And you know, That's not who Jesus chose. And I think maybe just to reveal the only means by which it's actually going to be accomplished, which is his spirit. And here's the question, we're going to, so we're going to land this thing soon, but my question that I've wrestled with, so you can see now that, that, that what has happened is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What is happening is that that news is now being moved into the hearts of people globally to create a global community of people that are belonging to God, okay? This is the plan that has been talked about all throughout the Old Testament. But, but like what I have been wrestling with is that every message that I see on this text, everything I've read on this text will just take you it will tell you to take this and read it for you. Okay, guys, so you see that? The Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to be witnesses. And, and, and I, I agree with that message, really, in so many ways, but literally, I've just been searching for some, something here because, because what I know is that that term witnesses is not actually for you. This is Interesting. That's not for you. That's not for you to, you can't do what they did. Okay? And I know that because Peter, when he goes to replace Judas, okay, so Judas, um, who betrayed Jesus, he ends up, uh, 
Uh, he ends up committing suicide, and then, uh, so he's out of the equation, and they replace him, and, G- and Peter says, well, we need somebody who has been around this whole time. We need somebody who walked with Jesus this whole time, just not one of the 12, and so they replace him with Matthias. So this witness's piece is not actually for you. That's what I've been wrestling with. Is it just these 12 guys? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? For real, because you've got to know, what is the Bible telling me my life is all about? What is the Bible telling me that I need to do with my life? Because if you just make up your own answer for that, you're not in a good, not in a good space, okay? We need to know what the Scriptures want you to do now with this information that has redefined who you are as a person. That's what the Gospel has done. The life, death, and, death, and resurrection has redefined who you are. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're a child of God. You're no longer destitute. You're a rich you're no longer an orphan, you're adopted. This, it's redefined who you are, so what are you supposed to do now? And so what you need to see is the apostles played a crucial role in this phase of redemption, redemptive history, a crucial role in launching the mission of, of the church, okay? Which, for the record, is just God's called out community, okay? It's not an institution as much as it is a people that he's called out, okay? But they didn't play the only role. Listen to me, I know we'll be done soon, but... The, the apostles, the one that Jesus, he, he says, you guys, you. And I think he's speaking specifically to these men because in a second we're going to see these angels talking to men of Galilee. These guys, these guys had a particular role to play in the history of redemption, but they didn't have the only role to play. I really wrestled with this because I can't just stand up here and tell you, oh, read this for you and then we'll see you next week. We needed witnesses who actually saw it. We needed witnesses who could bear testimony to the fact that this happened. And, and what happens from there is that you become witnesses of their witness. What your purpose is, what your mission is, where you fit in the history of redemption now is that you bear witness to their witness. And here's what it looks like. Because what, this, what happened is that these 12 guys, they actually did. They started bearing witness. They started testifying to the truth of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit did come on in them in power. And they were preaching. And they were doing miracles. They were doing things that was attesting to the truth of what they were saying. But here's what's crazy. is that it didn't stop with them. It didn't stop with them. Lock in with me and we're going to be done. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, it says, And Stephen, Stephen's not one of the twelve. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Listen to that. Stephen, not one of the apostles, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was full of grace and what? Power. Okay? And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, so some of these other folks, uh, they rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Okay, so you might not think this is a big deal. Maybe you can say, oh yeah, I'm a witness of Jesus, but you weren't there. These guys were there. They saw it. And what's happening is their witness is now becoming what we attest to, what we witnessed about. Stephen is saying, hey, this is what the truth is, and he's filled with God's spirit and power. Stephen was not one of the 12. He was one who believed their witness and became a spirit-empowered witness. Okay, that's what your 
mission is. That's what your purpose is. If you are in Christ, if you have believed the witness of, the, of these apostles, then now you become a spirit-empowered witness. Acts chapter 11, this is even crazier, okay? If you want to know how we got in this room, this is even crazier. Now those who were scattered, this is Acts chapter 11, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, the guy who I just mentioned who got stoned, he got killed for bearing witness about Jesus, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, so here's a problem. You're going to have this big Jewish-Gentile divide. Okay, but these Jews, so, so far the gospel's only getting to Jews. But here's the thing, verse 20 says this, track with me, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. There were some guys, some people, some men and women who heard the news of the gospel and they just started telling people. In verse 21, Acts chapter uh, 11 says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number of, and, and the great number who believed turned to the Lord. These were just some guys. They didn't even tell us their name. How did they advance the kingdom? How did they advance this news? How did they bear witness? The hand of the Lord, his power was with them. And so the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, kick-started the next phase of redemption. Okay, that's where, that's, where we, that's where we sit in this next stage of redemption. It's not complete. And we're going to see over the coming weeks how they do that. But the mission would be carried out into further and further geographies and further and further generations by spirit-empowered witnesses of their witness. Spirit-empowered witnesses of their witness. And so what do you need to do today? What do you, what is, why am I telling you all this? What are you supposed to do with this? Why does it matter for you? It matters for us as a church and it matters for you as an individual, okay? What you need to do today is receive their witness if you have not. Or maybe you've just grown kind of bored with their witness. Maybe you have grown complacent with their witness. Maybe you have grown doubtful about their witness. But if you're in this room or you're hearing my voice, I'm trying to convince you with all of my heart and, and maybe the Spirit would just do, you, do, do this for you to receive the witness of the apostles. You know what's amazing about the scriptures is that it's written down by them or people who are sitting next to them writing what they're saying. Believe this, receive that witness that Jesus didn't just live and die, but that he rose again for you. It's spirit-empowered trusting in what Jesus began to do and teach. Believe that his life, death, and resurrection is for you. I'm begging you to do that. And if you do, Charles Spurgeon says this, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear if it's precious to you. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be all the more eloquent. You don't need to be flashy with your words. You need to believe that it's for you. You want to know why your evangelism is not effective? I think probably the first problem is that you don't believe it's for you. When we believe, so uh, your eye, and he, Spurgeon finishes, and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. 
When we believe what he did and taught, it will affect what we do and teach. Do you see that? When we believe what Jesus did and taught, it will affect what you do and teach. And, and, and you can say what you want to about that. You might say, oh, I don't think that's true, or maybe this excuse or that excuse. When you believe what Jesus did and taught for you, it will affect what you do and teach. Okay? Uh, and so you receive their witness, and then you become a witness. You receive their witness, and then you, in this room, okay, if you're listening to me and you're a member of City Church, this is not, uh, like, I know this, we're, like, pretty long in time right now, but I'm, I'm really begging you to hear this. A renewal, a revival of joyful worship that advances God's kingdom in every generation is going to happen if and only if you receive the witness of the apostles that Jesus' life, death, death, and resurrection is for you, and then you become a witness. Not me. I mean, I'm going to try to do it to my neighbors, to Brad and to Megan, to Brian and Catherine, to Scott. I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to get them in here or into my kitchen or into my backyard or wherever, on the phone, any of these places. But if, unless you do it, it's not, it's not just the apostles and now it's not just the preachers. It's you. Receive their witness and become a witness. You don't have to be awesome at this. You just need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all you need. We are not witnesses in the same way that Acts uses that term, but we are witnesses of their witness. We are witnesses of what Jesus has finished on our behalf, on your behalf. We demonstrate and declare the truth of Jesus' life, death, death, and resurrection. Demonstrate it. Is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection affecting what you do? Like, is it changing? What Are you doing something different than you would have done without that? That's demonstrating the gospel? Are you declaring it? How is his life, death, and resurrection coming out of your mouth? Okay. This has implications for your career. It doesn't mean that you don't have a really awesome career. It just means that's not the most awesome thing about you. It's not what your, your career is for. This has implications for your relationships with your neighbors, with your spouse, with your friends. It doesn't mean you don't have those relationships. It means that they're saturated with good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It has implications for your parenting. It doesn't mean that you don't love your kids and give them great things and parent them to God's glory, but you are parenting them saturated with this good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you and for them. Do you see that? This has implications. This puts you into context. The story of redemption is not complete, and now it's being carried out by you. If our church believes that, if we do what this church did, which is respond to this crazy assignment with desperation for the Spirit, I have a lot of confidence about what's going to happen in the coming seasons. If we don't, then City Church will soon be no more, or I hope it won't be. Because I don't want to be a part of a church, and you don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't see where we fit into the context of this history you don't want to be a part of a church like that. Neither do I. But that's why I believe that Acts is the right place for us right now. The last thing I'm going to tell you, what will happen. So I told you what has happened, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What is happening, that news is being by the Holy Spirit sent out into the ends of the earth, okay? We at one point were the ends of that earth, for, for the record. And now it's continuing to go further and farther. But what will happen? Okay, what will happen? 
So, anti-venom. It was created in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. That was when this anti-venom was created. Jesus didn't ask them to develop it. He asked them to deliver it. That's what we're doing, delivering anti-venom. But one day, he's going to come back and there will be no more venom. One day, he will do away with the snake. He will be no more. And that's what he says at the end. And when he had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When he comes back, he's bringing heaven to earth with him. But he's coming back. This period of redemption, it won't last forever. He's coming back, and he's bringing heaven with him. Andrew, will you come up so we can sing in just a moment? And as we go to sing these songs, I'll tell you, part of my desire, my dream for these Sunday gatherings that we have is that they would be filled with spirit-empowered preaching and singing. Listen to me on that. What are you coming here for? Is this where all of church happens? No. This is the rally point of the saints where we would gather together and there would be spirit-empowered fellowship, spirit-empowered hospitality. Uh, People are being drawn in here. Even today, there are people visiting and coming into this gathering who might get to know Jesus more because of it. So we want that, and we want spirit-empowered preaching and singing. And that's not just by Andrew or whoever's leading worship that day or whoever's preaching that day. Spirit-empowered singing by you. So would you join in that? Would you sing like that? We're going to cut the lights here in just a minute so just so you can, so there's less barriers for you so we can create a space not to manipulate hearts but so that we can create a space where you could sing and respond to this truth. As we do, I'm going to read you this. It's a hymn. It's not one we're going to sing but it's the truth of the gospel packed into it, okay? And think about this as we uh, get to sing. We're going to do now what we will do forever, Okay? He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary, and he suffered and died alone. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, it will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Father, would you, would you do a work in hearts today to help them believe, of your, to believe in your love for them? That Jesus of Nazareth perfect, spotless, sinless, never once rejected you, never once rebelled against you, never had a thought, attitude, or action that that countered you or was contrary to what you wanted. He never committed sexual sin. He was never jealous. He was never prideful. He never abused substances. He never doubted you. He died for us. And I pray that Would you do a work, Holy Spirit, just to convince us of that? Would you help us to be a people who know for certain as much as we can, that we know that we know that we know, that that we'd have this experience like Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about where we're little kids sweeped up by our fathers who look us in the eye and says, I love you, you are mine. Would you do that for this community of people? Would Would you do it in this season? And then, God, would you use us? Would you make us spirit-empowered witnesses to the witness of these apostles, the men that you walk with, Jesus, who carry the news to us, who laid down their life to get us that news? Would you do that?
So would you help us to sing about it now? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.